0: Thank you pastor phil uh for that introduction and uh glad to see you here and glad to see soul city uh, supporting your work for all you watching this you know what he's been doing at the house in lawndale for so many years is amazing and he's preached at our church many times so phil so sorry we missed you on your birthday we'll get you next year my brother but thank you for that warm introduction and uh to the soul soul city community in general i'm so glad to be here Uh, A lot of you probably know this. I go way back with Jerry and Jeannie. Way back, even before the Soul City days, known you all since the day you started here. So very thankful for the work you're doing and the way you're part of the city overall. Here, it's an honor to be invited to speak here again. Um, We're going to build on what I talked about last time I was here. Also, just what's kind of a national conversation right now. In fact, I mean to state the obvious. 2020 has been some kind of a year, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, we're all dealing with COVID right now, and uh, what that means for schooling, for kids, and the economic impact for many of, of you. And so my heart goes out to you in that. I know that's just an ongoing daily reality for us. But this has also been a unique year. I mean, race is always part of America's challenge of what we're up against. But 2020 has been a unique year in that sense, and that even in the middle of isolation, even in the middle of social distancing, even in the middle of quarantine, there have still been these series of really violent things that happened, particularly in the early part of this year. There was Ahmaud Arbery, there was Breonna Taylor, there was the incident between Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper, and then, of course, um, sadly, tragically, um, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, and that became a catalyst. Uh, I think a lot of folks would say this conversation is happening at a level right now across our country and in many spaces where it's not often talked about, and we're still in that right now, and uh, I want to join you all in that, continue in that. And even as we do, I want to acknowledge whenever we're in a diverse community like this, um, there's uh, f- fairly common set of challenges that come with that, that I think are just good to name up front. Whenever you've got people of different racial backgrounds and community together, there's gonna be some of you watching this who your lived reality, your daily reality is such that you're facing the brutal realities of the system of race on a daily basis. And so for you, we almost couldn't talk about this enough, right, to be in church and not talk about this would be odd. And yet the reality is for many of us, I would include myself in this, where um, the threat of race is not a daily lived experience for us. It can feel like we're talking about it too much. There's a fatigue that can come with it. Um, so we are gonna have to hold space for all of that. I just am recognizing that even as I can't solve it. But to set up kind of the really singular direction I'd like to go today, I'd like to link it back to what I, where I was able to speak with y'all last time. Y'all invited me after I wrote a book called White Awake. And uh, that was in um, 2017 when that was written, and it was describing some of my own faith journey of coming to understand the reality of white supremacy—not talking about white people, but the ideology of white supremacy and how to think about that from a faith lens. And uh, the book was really well received, which I was thankful for. in white institutions across the country, and the leaders of our church kind of worked it out where once a month I could visit a different college or university or church, and be part of the conversations they were ha- having. And over the last three years of doing that, it's kind of what led to this next book, White Lies. But over the last three years, it, 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 it was another level of awakening for me, particularly in how white Christians, you know we never want to overgeneralize, but there are these themes in terms of how we as white Christians in particular interact with this conversation. And so what happened, I'd get invited into a college or university or church, oftentimes by the person who's been tasked with this conversation. More often than not, an African American person that tends to be the profile of who's often kind of tabbed to lead this, and which I think rightfully so. And so I would assume that part of the hope was that we would have these advanced conversations in terms of how do we organize ourselves to really confront race and, you know, kind of do our part. But what I kind of what I found over and over, what leaders would lament is as is, is we were trying to have this conversation is this reality that I kind of want to name, at a minimum, I think we have to wrestle with this just being a national reality within white Christian spaces, but really, I think all of us who are white and Christian need to consider the way that this has impacted us as well. So th- here's kind of bottom line how they'd say it. They'd say, when this conversation around race comes up, even in the time of elevated discourse and, you know, something in like a post-George Floyd world, um, there's this disconnect that we don't know what really to do with. On one hand, you've got people who are very serious about their faith. They're very serious about following Jesus. And at some level, there's like a growing interest to talk about race and the problem of white supremacy and what to do with that, but the, the, the two are just not connected for people. There's a division between those two realities. So, they say, so even at best, so you get the group that's rising up, you know, and I'm really talking white Christians now. So, you get the white Christians who are passionate about this. Even the ones who are passionate about it, it's rarely coming from their sense of, because I follow Jesus, I need to care about this. It's almost like even for them, it's divided. I have my faith in Jesus, and then there's the subject matter that's really important to me. But they said, but then at its worst, we continue to find that even as people try to engage with it, there's just all these internal. Um, theological even of faith kinds of things that discredit this conversation. Uh, Sometimes you get these buzzwords like, the race conversation is a social conversation. Or if you're in these conservative Christian spaces, it'll be called a liberal leftist conversation. Or there's this, it'll get tagged as a political conversation. Uh, In recent days, um, some of you've, you've may even expose this and kind of the environments that you're from, um, uh, what's happening in a lot of spaces is the term Black Lives Matter is being, rather than wrestling with why that term needed to come up in the first place as a reality of race that has continually discredited black life, um, in a lot of white Christian spaces there's like, oh, we wholeheartedly disagree with the politics of the Black Lives Matter movement and therefore we don't want to have race conversations. Or this is a little bit more specific one specific one, but it's happening a lot too. There's something called critical race theory, which is a secular approach for how to deal with race. And so, so white Christian spaces will say, "No, see, that's the secular conversation. We don't want to talk about it, you know, uh, in, in in a Christian space." Bottom line, I'm just trying to come back to what I've heard over and over again, and I've really heard this, and I've listened to this, and I've really been trying to deal with this in my own life, in our church's life, in the spaces I'm in. Bottom line is this, um, that in so many Christian spaces, there's this disconnect between following Jesus and seeing that as as, if we follow him, that we have to confront race to uh, to see the problem that if you're seeking Jesus and his kingdom, that you must also be standing up against the ideology and the system of race and of white supremacy. Uh, there's a disconnect between those. It's not a natural theological progression for many who grew up in white Christian spaces to say, if I love Jesus, I must hate white supremacy. And in a little bit of time today, that's really what I'd like to try to do, to begin to, at first, theologically reconnect these in a way that I hope, really in an almost permanent sense, changes the way you think of this conversation from a theological perspective. And then we're going to take a turn. I'm going to try to show how it's playing out in an almost undeniable way on a daily basis for us, um, both historically and present tense, but we'll get there in a second. So here's where I'd like to start. Uh, Let's take kind of one pass and say, if you're thinking about the problem of race, the problem of white supremacy from a biblical perspective right? Say it another way. If your faith in Jesus Christ, for those of you who made that commitment, and I love the way Soul City does this, holds space for people all over the place in terms of how you're coming into this transforming relationship with Jesus. But when you get to that point where you say, I believe transformation is found in Jesus Christ alone. I give my life to him. I want to follow him. How should that naturally lead you to see the, 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 the system of race as a huge problem? right. So a lot of ways we can answer that question. I'm picking just one, but I think it's the most, I would say it's the most important starting point because it's, it's building on the very identity of who Jesus is. And if I can kind of throw this in there, building on the very identity of who the devil is. And that can be a little bit of an odd conversation or not something we think about in everyday um, language, but, you know, even at a conceptual level, if, If we believe there's a supernatural God who we're living in light of, it probably makes sense that there's also supernatural evil, right? And the truth of the matter is, you just can't listen to Jesus talk about life with him very much without him also warning that the evil one's real, right? That even how he teaches us to pray, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. um, It ends with protect us from the evil one, right? That as we live into the life that God has for us, there's there's this reality of the presence of evil. And so what I'd like to just explore, you may even know these, and if you do, great, it'll be a reminder, but you may have never heard this before. At the, at the most basic, fundamental identity level, who is Jesus? How does he talk about himself in scriptures? Who is the devil? How does Jesus talk, how, how does Jesus talk about who the devil is? Um, we're going to go to John chapter 8 for that. So if you want to open your Bibles or open on your phone, open your tablet, it might be helpful to just kind of follow along in this a little bit. I do want to give a little bit of background because it's actually a pretty intense chapter. Uh, John chapter 8 is this kind of enormous conflict between Jesus and a group called the Pharisees. And um, the Pharisees get a hard time in the New Testament and um, rightfully so because they missed Jesus even when the... Incarnated version of God was in front of them. They couldn't see him for who he was. But we shouldn't discredit them for reasons that, 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 that they don't deserve. One of the things that's most admirable, and I think it's okay to say this, the Pharisees were so religiously devoted, it was unbelievable, right? The whole nature of what made them who they were is what we would not call the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures. They they would memorize, if not major portions, the entire Hebrew scripture. I mean, their life was totally committed to following the rules of the Hebrew scriptures. On top of that, they were so committed to living a holy life that they they added on another 600 plus rules that would kind of organize and govern their lives to make sure that they were giving proper credit to God. So when they would have these disputes with Jesus, it wasn't over religious devotion. That was not their problem. They were religious devoted. And yet, still could miss some of the basic truths such as God revealing himself as Jesus and um, the reality of evil. So this is this big conversation in John chapter 8. I'm just going to kind of pull out the verses where Jesus talks about himself and where Jesus talks about the devil. All right, so a couple of very famous verses that comes from this argument with the Pharisees. Here's how Jesus describes himself. This is in chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. I'm going to add in uh, verse 36 here. So John records it like this. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said this. If you hold to my teaching, you're my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. All right. So this word truth, Jesus describes himself and it's not just here. He does this over and over again. Jesus describes himself as truth. And just even just a quick word on this, I think for a lot of us, when we think of truth, we almost think of like opening an encyclopedia or a reference book or something. We think of it as a set of ideas, a set of beliefs. And I don't think that's necessarily incorrect, but when Jesus describes himself as truth, it's not even just as an idea you subscribe to, a belief that you, you know, organize yourself around. He's saying his very essence, his very self is that of truth. John 14 is one of my favorite passages. This is when he talks about how we can see the essence of who God is through him. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the, I am the life. He's saying, truth, truth is a person, it's the full expression of God. right, so this has many implications beyond our conversation on race today. But just to like nail this down, Jesus says, I'm truth. And truth isn't something to be scared of. Um, One of the worst things we have is that the the truth hurts. The truth doesn't hurt. When Jesus describes truth, it's freedom oriented. It's liberation oriented. Truth sets us free. The more you experience this transformational relationship with Jesus, the more you're set free because of the truth that is found in him. All right, now let's contrast that with how Jesus talks about the devil. Just a little bit further in this conversation, Jesus asks it in question form. He's frustrated. He says, why is my language not clear to you? This is in verse 43. Because you are unable to hear what I say. And here's why. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It sounds very much like John 10.10 when Jesus says there's a thief who tries to steal and kill and destroy. He's a murderer from the beginning. He wants to disrupt and kill the work of God. Not holding to the truth, which of course the truth is Jesus. So Satan, the devil, terms used synonymously. The evil one, we can all use these synonymously. Organizes himself in opposition to the truth of Jesus. For there is no truth in him. And it's this last part of verse 44 I want you to really reflect on. It's just so straightforward the way Jesus says this. The whole Bible points to the devil is a liar. But here's one of the most straightforward places where it's said. When the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. All right, so when Jesus uses language, he says it three different ways. He essentially says it three different ways in they all highlight just a small part that's different. So first, he just bottom lines it. He says, the devil is a liar, right? But he says, the devil's not just a liar. His native tongue is that of lies. And a lot of you who are watching this, you have learned a second language before, you understand how significant a native tongue is. Um, when, when you've got a mother tongue, a native tongue, it's, it's what you most naturally think in, it's what you most naturally pray in, it's how you make sense of the world through that. Um, when, when Jesus says the native tongue of the devil is that of lies, I hope you see it. It's it's, it's this very graphic depiction. He's saying when the devil thinks, when he communicates, when he makes sense of things, he only has one way of making sense of it. He lies. Everything's about distorting the truth of God. That's the the primary way that evil shows up in the world is through lies. And then this last part, which I'm going to kind of make the pivot here to race from this. Jesus says the devil's the father of lies. All right, now let me take a quick step over and talk about race again and then come back to this theological motif of looking at the devil as the father of lies. It's not fair to spend just 60 seconds defining what race is. You know, you guys have had conversations. I listened to all those when you, when you did the Enough is Enough series, which was really great. I thought this lie was really held up well. You know, I've been here before with, with White Awake. So you, you have resources. Tasha's been here. Her stuff is so good. I know you guys are doing that stuff. Um, the ideology of white supremacy. The system of race, though so much can be said about it and so much of the destruction that comes from it needs to be thought about. At its core, the system of race is built on a lie. You could really say a single lie. There's the truth. It's all about human value. So there's the truth. God says who you are and who all human beings are is um, the starting point is what the Bible calls the imago day, the image of God, that the fact that you are created in the image and likeness of God is what gives you permanent, eternal human value and dignity. That's why No matter what life situation somebody's in when you meet them, their dignity is never at stake. Their worth is never at question. They're inherently worthy because they are children of the Almighty God. They've been created in the image and likeness of God. I hope you understand. When we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about race, we are talking about something built on a single lie that assaults and attacks the lies of God. What race says, it, race literally disputes this. Race says, no, 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 no. Human being, dig, the dignity of human beings does not come from the image and likeness of God. Mm-mm-mm. The capacity of a human being does not come from the fact that they are created in the image of a triune God. Mm-mm-mm-mm. The system of race is built on a lie that says human value comes from where you fall on this racial hierarchy. And since this hierarchy's been created, it's about 500 years old, we could make that case in a different conversation. It's about a 500-year-old hierarchy that's been built on this lie. And it says the top, it's always said that at the top is whiteness. That's where this term white supremacy comes from. It's not describing just violent people who do violent things. It's an ideology. It's saying there's an inherent supremacy, an inherent superiority that comes with whiteness. It's always been built with black on the bottom. I hate to say that out loud, but it's always how the hierarchy has been built. It has always said black people are less than human they're subhuman. When taxation was being argued in the Constitution, black people called three-fifths human, which really gets to this lie that whiteness is five-fifths human, blackness is three-fifths human. And then the lie has always organized other racial groups based on the proximity to the superiority of whiteness and the inferiority of blackness. And you can look throughout history in the way Latino, Latinx folks are talked about, or the way Asian American folks are talked about, and how based on their perceived proximity to either whiteness or blackness, they're Human value would determine based on that. And so if you can just go with me on that, that the heart of how race works is built on a lie about assigning human value based on this racial hierarchy. If we bring it back to the words of John 8, when Jesus says, I'm truth. So truth means the starting point's always going to be seeing human beings as created in the image of God and therefore having an inherent value and worth. The lie of race, which is demonic, if I can use that word, says no. Human value is not tied to the image and likeness of God. It's tied to where you fell on the human hierarchy. And if I can use that last phrase that Jesus used in John 8, when Jesus said the devil's the father of lies... Here's how I say it. Anytime you see a lie anywhere, it's dangerous, right? I think you can can trace most body image issues to this. You can trace most overworking to this. You can trace trying to please parents to this. It's based on some kind of a lie that to be worthy, to be meaningful, you have to do X, right? Anytime there's a lie, it's destructive. This phrase, the father of lies, is particularly powerful. I think this is, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, we're not battling against flesh and blood. We're battling against principalities and powers of darkness. If you want to know what a principality is without getting spooked by it, a principality is somewhere where a lie is being protected and where it's not just a single person saying the lie, but where the lie is clustered together, where it has swarmed together, where it almost feels like something's in a father-like way protecting that lie. I really think that's that's the essence of how to biblically think about what race is. It is a single lie about human value that's got a 500-year history around it of swarming together, clustering together, uh, um, being protected at all costs. So now what I find, so now I'm going to make a turn, but not a turn. What I want to do, it's going to feel different because I'm going to move very quickly out of theology. What I often find is that White Christians go, okay, that makes sense. Jesus, truth, devil, liar. I guess that makes sense that race is a lie, but is it really as far-reaching as you've said? I did a whole chapter in this next book, White Lies, where I just take... Um, famous quotes from politicians throughout the centuries in the United States. <clears throat> we could have done this with artists. We could have done this with entertainers. We could have done this with writers. We could have done this with poets. You can look at it from anywhere. I picked politicians not because I'm trying to make a partisan point. In fact, in the book I make sure it's 8 and 8, um, Republican and Democrats so that everybody understands I'm not making a partisan point here. I'm trying to show that this lie inhabits both parties. It's, it's what we're up against in society, is this lie. Um, so I'm just going to do a handful of them here, but I just want to show you Here's what's remarkable. So you're going to see the lie in every one of these quotes from political leaders. Again, it's, you're going to see a Republican, you see a Democrat. That's not at all the point I'm trying to make. What I want to show is how similar the lie sounds from 250 years ago up till now. It hasn't really needed to reinvent itself. How consistent the lie is. Um, how durable the lie is. Again, this lie of assigning human superior human traits to whiteness, inferior human traits to blackness, and then measuring everybody between those two. Uh, and I just want you to see just how unbending it's been. So I wanna give a bit of a trigger warning here, not a bit of, give a trigger warning, particularly black folks watching this. This is gonna be painful to see over and over and over again how this lie of human worth has been told by politician after politician after politician. But for everybody, I just hope, like, let it just sit in just to kind of go through this and, and hear how consistent this is. So these will come up as I'm reading them. I going to start all the way with the beginning. Thomas Jefferson, a founding father, third president of the United States. Here's what he said. He said, amalgamation with the other color If you don't know what amalgamation is, that's when two people um, have sexual relations and a baby comes out of that. Amalgamation is describing black and white. Amalgamation with the other color produces degradation to which no lover of his country, no lover of excellence in the human character can innocently consent. And of course this is from the same man who owned more than 600 slaves, fathered several biracial children amalgamating with them. And this one's important because it set the stage for what was both uh, an understood idea but even legislated for a long time called the one drop rule, which literally said if a white person had one single drop of sub-Saharan blood within the African blood within them, that polluted the whiteness because the, the degradation of blackness was seen as uh, that serious. So Thomas Jefferson, the same one who said, all men are created equal with the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness also said, to amalgamate between a white person and a black person is something no person who loved their country would do. Let's go to another founding father. Let's go to James Madison, uh, uh, fourth president. He said, describing black people, again, these are gonna be very painful, generally idle and depraved, appearing to retain the bad qualities of the slaves with whom they continue to associate without acquiring any good ones of the whites. Right, Very clearly describing this lie of the superiority of whiteness, the inferiority of blackness. And even, you're going to see this in a number of these, even kind of using theological type language. Notice he used that word depraved to describe it, which is a theological term saying there's almost nothing redeemable about somebody. Um, uh, Just a very potent way of getting that lie across. All right, now here's a hard one. Uh, We're going to do one of the good guys, um, which is intentional because... I don't think it's helpful to say there's these bad people who tell lies and there's these good people who don't. What I'm trying to say is we're all impacted by this lie. We're all impacted. So mo- most historians would say Abraham Lincoln did as much good legislation around racial affairs as anybody. And yet look at the degree to which he still embraced this lie. He said, There is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. See how deep that goes? Let's move up a little bit. I think this one's important because it's tied to the founding of the Confederacy. This is Jefferson Davis, a senator from Mississippi. Those of you who follow even Kennedy's work, you know, you'll see that he wrote his first book off of this quote. Uh, uh, Davis said, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. The inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. One of the reasons that one is so hard for me in particular is the way not, I mean, this lie is so deadly, so dangerous. And again, it's not, it's not just extreme violence groups who say these are saying these are politicians who've been elected by 51% or more of the nation, right? Um, notice the way he appeals the divinity language, divine language, right? One human being can't stamp worth onto another human being, right? We don't have that. That's a divine function. That's a divine power. Davis was saying God stamped The narrative of racial hierarchy, the the story about superior and inferiority on people from the beginning. And we have to understand this is so core to our history. When he became the president of the 11 Confederate states that seceded from the United States, it was built on the, the, the belief that this is what's been stamped on us from the beginning. All right, moving a little bit ahead now to Andrew Johnson. Uh, These next couple, uh, they really hardly even need commentary. It is just such a clear depiction of the lie that says white people are superior, black people are inferior. Again, I'm talking about the lie. I'm not talking about white people right now. Any of us can believe the lie. Any of us can learn to reject the lie. We're trying to analyze the lie and the way evil sustains it. He said, it is vain to deny that black Americans are an inferior race, very far inferior to the European variety. They have learned in slavery all they know in civilization. All right. I don't, I don't think I probably need to expand it. Let's just go to the next one. Let's go to Theodore Roosevelt, who said, yeah, nearly precisely the same thing. You grieve my heart every time I read these. A perfectly stupid race can never rise to a very high plane. The Negro, for instance, has been kept down as much by lack of intellectual development as by anything else. Let's keep moving up throughout history. I do want to show, I'm, this is never just a black-white conversation. It affects everybody, but the, the lie is built on proximity to whiteness and proximity to blackness. So I want to show how it began to evolve where other people were measured based on the proximities to these two. So Woodrow Wilson, who was um, he's a whole case study on how he regularly came to this lie. But here's one of the things he said. He said, I stand for the national policy of exclusion. We cannot make a homogeneous population of people who do not blend with the Caucasian race. So see, what he's saying here is, you know, white people, they're the superior, that the, we can't risk amalgamation, we can't risk any type of intermixing or intermarrying. Oriental coolism will give us yet another problem, and surely we have already had our lesson. What's the lesson you think he's referring to there? That's the lesson of the one-drop rule. That had so much staying power, this belief that the purity of whiteness would be polluted by even one drop of mixing with blood. And so now that was historically black, and would always be, but now he's saying, just Asians in general, they too represent a dilution, a, a, a contamination of white blood. Uh, let's go to one, we'll jump up now, we're gonna start moving very closely into the civil rights era, some of what kind of brought this to a head. Um, Alan Allender who was a senator in Louisiana, he said this, um, the Negro himself cannot make progress unless he has white leadership. If you call that supremacy, suit yourself. But I say the Negro race as a whole, if permitted to go to itself, will inerv- in- invariably go back to barbaric lunacy. So see, I- I'm including that one, because I want you to see start to become co- the lie becomes coded, where barbaric lunacy, is how we're describing the inferiority inferiority of black folks. Uh, The white leadership or the godlike abilities to guide and illuminate is uh, being associated with whiteness. Let's go to Richard Nixon. This would be in the 70s. And this touches on a very sensitive issue of abortion. Um, And I'm not trying to say something about this as much as how race is part of everything, including that. Here's what he was recorded of saying when asked if there's ever a time for abortion. He said, I know there are times when abortions are necessary. When you have a black and white interracial pregnancy or a rape. Here what he's saying? Um, he, he is putting on the same equivalent of rape as a black person and a white person having a baby together. Isn't that amazing? We started with Thomas Jefferson who said amalgamation is an affront to the country and now you have 19, uh, Richard Nixon in the 70s saying the same thing. Hasn't changed a bit. And then one more just because I want to show the consistency of it. There's been a, This lie is regularly used in the rhetoric even today. So one of the kind of more classic ones that President Trump used is when he said we don't want immigrants from asshole places like Haiti and Africa. We need places, uh, we need immigrants to places like Norway. It's just the same idea that you know, Norway depicting almost the whitest of white of European countries that we want kind of the pure immigrants that come from the highest class. And we don't want places like Haiti, a black country or an entire continent like Africa, which is black. Right? Just this lie continues to pass from generation to generation to generation. So what does that mean for you? If you love Jesus and you're following Jesus, what does that mean? Just a couple of closing thoughts here. For one, I think it's so helpful to come back to who Jesus is and who the devil are at their most fundamental level. Jesus is truth. When you know his truth, when you experience his truth, when you come under his truth, you are set free, right? We should always be pursuing the truth of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the evil one is a liar. He is the father of lies. His native tongue is that of lies. I would suggest to you, you cannot love your Jesus without hating lies. You cannot follow your Jesus without confronting lies. And if you can see that, then it should be an easy jump to the conversation on race and white supremacy. White supremacy and race is built on a lie about human value. It says it disputes the truth that human value comes from who we are as image bearers in God and instead promotes this image that value is associated with the proximity to the superiority of whiteness or the inferiority of blackness. And, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, I don't believe that good. I, I wouldn't imagine you're coming here if you believe that. But the reality is we're entering into a society, as we've just shown, that's organized completely around this lie. And to love Jesus is to hate the lies of white supremacy. And so I would suggest to you that this is one of the ways to put it back together. To love Jesus is to hate lies, and to hate lies is to join Jesus in speaking truth to those. And as we do that, I think it positions us to enter into this conversation and to stand up to these lies in a way that's totally different than anything we've ever done. So thank you for letting me share with you. I'm going to close this in a time of prayer and just ask that God will continue to lead us into this conversation. Dear God, as we, in all of our different spaces where we're watching this, um, We come to you as image bearers, as children of the Almighty God, as human beings who you thought of in your imagination before we ever took our first breath, who you designed intimately and intentionally while we were still in our mother's womb. That's who we are. That's what the truth of us is. But we have been born into a system. We've been born into a society where a lie about human value reigns and where it reigns destruction and pain where we have seen lives lost to this lie over and over, where we've seen systems of inequality built on these lies. Help us, God, to know the truth of you in increasingly sharp ways. We need that, that's the starting point. And then empower us, give us the courage to stand up to those lies, to reveal those lies, to refuse to be complicit with those lies as we follow you. We know there's freedom in you. We pray that we will continue to experience that freedom. In your name we pray, amen.